The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. LinkedIn News. Hi, I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's Editor-in-Chief. Welcome to This Is Working, the podcast where my colleague Nina Melendez and I take an interview from my video series, dissect it, analyze it, and extract our top takeaways for you, the listener. It's the TLDR with some input and insight from me and Nina. Hey, Nina. Hey, Dan. Dan, I have missed you at the gym. Yes. (laughs) Where have you been? I... (laughs) You were so good and consistent, like all summer. We have never talked about the fact on this podcast before that we are always at the gym at the same time. But I have to say, just for our listeners, I appreciate your gym etiquette because I hate going to the gym and seeing people and then they come and they talk to you while you're working out. Yeah, who likes that? Oh, I mean, people do it. So I appreciate that every time I see, we just give it the like the little nod of like, hey, yes, yes. (laughs) yes." And then we we don't talk, we don't look and it's good because I get sweaty and gross and I'm I'm happy that you're not. I mean, that's the point of the gym, right? Exactly. So so where have you been? So I've been... I've been lifting at home. As soon as I start taking my kids to school again, then I'll be back in the gym more regularly. But right now, I'm not taking them anywhere. I can do it at home, and then I come in. But I got to say, I've just, this is a a New Year's or a New Year resolution, this working out that you're seeing here. Interesting. And And I've heard about this, and I've read about it, and everyone said it, which is that exercise makes you better at work. I didn't believe it, and but it's definitely having an impact on me. Like I feel like I'm more ready for the day if I exercise before. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm just impressed because you have said several times that you're not a resolutions person. You don't do a journal and you don't like resolutions. But here we are seven, eight months into the year and you're still doing your New Year's resolution. Yeah, this is the birthday decision. Uh, last year, I was like, all right, this is it. Uh-huh. I'm getting older. I've got to like, if I don't start doing it now, I'm never going to do it. Yeah. And I'm sticking with it. I like it. It's great that you're sticking with it, Dan. Thanks, Nina. I appreciate that. So who are we talking about today? Speaking of exercise, today we are taking a re-listen to an interview that I did recently with Stephanie Linartz. Stephanie is the CEO of Under Armour, new CEO. She's been there about five months. She was a longtime executive at Marriott, uh, about 25 years at Marriott. Stephanie has a ton of experience in hospitality and leisure, but she didn't necessarily have any great experience in retail. She'd never worked in retail before. She's on the board of Home Depot, so she was exposed to it. But nothing like the day-to-day that is required to be able to run a company like Under Armour. One of the first things she told you is how she was going to learn before she even knew she had the job just to understand Under Armour and how retail works. And she went and she visited all these stores. Let's take a listen. Some of the greatest learnings I got in, in that run-up to starting my job as the CEO at Under Armour were spending time in the stores, talking to the associates, the teammates, and I would take notes after my visits. And it was a lot of fun. There's an Under Armour store close to where I live, and that was, I was kind of like undercover boss before I was the boss. And I would just go in and ask the dumb questions. Why do you do this? What's selling? Why is this over here? And I gained so much insight about 
things that we could do better in terms of merchandising the stores or things that were resonating with customers and things that weren't. So I do think it's that talking to the frontline employees and then really listening. And then I would take copious notes afterwards because I didn't know that I was about to be the CEO. I, I should tell you a funny story. I did go back to that store once I was announced as the CEO and they're like, oh my gosh, you've been coming in here, you know, every few days for a couple months. We thought you just loved Under Armour. But yeah, it is, there is something very um, exciting about entering a new industry and asking the dumb questions. Why do you do that? How come? And you really gain some tremendous insights um, when you look at a company with fresh eyes and with a fresh perspective. One thing that really struck me was that she was at Marriott for 25 years. Like that is a lifetime yeah. to be at a company. And now she's coming to Under Armour with completely fresh eyes. And I almost think it's her value proposition that she doesn't have all that much retail experience. Because she can look at things and be like, why are we doing this? Why is this happening? She mentions entering a new industry and asking the dumb questions. I was so glad she used the term dumb questions because I think we should normalize asking dumb questions. Like, it Great. Is, I ask them all the time. That's great. That's why you're doing so well. You know, I, I should have asked her this, but in 25 years, by the end, was she still asking dumb questions? I mean, like, mm. at some point, you kind of know everything or you know a lot. Now, she moved around within Marriott, so she must have asked dumb questions at the beginning of each role. But at some point, you're five years into the role. Yeah. Are you still allowed to ask dumb questions about your your area? I think the answer should be yes. Right. I mean, you should because, especially as a leader, if you are the one who's asking the dumb questions, you know there is someone else in the room yeah. who wants to ask that question and is too scared to do it. It sets the tone. Absolutely. It says, this is okay. This is how we operate. Yeah. And I think that so often you get an answer to a question and it is an answer to a question that is true as of the moment that you're getting that answer. Right. But three years later, things have changed. In the case of Marriott, the travelers change, changed. The expectations have changed. If you work in any kind of a company where you're dealing with customers or trends, which I think is like 100% of companies, things are changing all the time. The same question that you asked a year ago, you might need to ask again. Or sometimes it's just the way things are done. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, you always need that person. And this is, again, why the fresh perspective is so good. You just need that person to be like, wait, why? So why is it done this way? Like, yeah. why are we doing it this way? One of the things I love to tell new employees is question everything and ask the questions that you think are obvious and solved. Because I guarantee you that probably 50, 60% of the time, maybe even higher, we're doing things in a certain way because that is how we've done things. Right. You're just busy. You're trying to get stuff done. You got yeah. to accomplish something. But yeah. no one has actually thought, can it be done in a better way? Right. So you get to ask that question. Yeah. Why do we do it this way? And that could spark an idea where someone says, yeah. I have no idea why we do it this way. Yeah. Or to your point, it's what we did a year ago. But a year ago, the circumstances were different. Exactly. The situations were different. So it worked back then. So we should revisit whether we need to change things now. I have a question about Stephanie popping into these uh, retail locations yeah. and asking these dumb questions is you're on the floor. You're trying to sell Under Armour uh, t-shirts and, yeah. and shoes. And this person's coming and asking you, and she said she didn't reveal who she was. Uh -huh. So she's like, why are you putting this here? And what's the deal here? And why yeah. is this on this end cap? Yeah. Don't you think if you're a retail, oh if, you're, if you're in the floor, <laughs> yeah. you're like, who is this crazy person? I would person? just be like, listen, woman, do you want to buy the shoes or not? Do you need the whole story right. behind why this is here to buy these shoes? Is exactly. that going to help you make this purchase? You know, it reminded me of... Oscar Munoz, when we had him on the show, yeah, he talked about when he became the CEO of United, before he became the CEO, he would fly constantly and he would walk up and down the aisles. He knew he was going to be the CEO. No one else did. He'd walk up and down the aisles and he would ask the flight attendants and the pilots, 
every question about why is this done this way. And he started collecting information. And I think what he was looking for was not specific answers, but patterns. Yeah. And so if you're Stephanie, the frontline worker, the retail uh, associate might not have the answers, but you hear it from enough people, Mm -hmm. it starts telling you that something is weird. Right. Or something. And and also, I think you do get a feeling. You work on a floor and you get a feeling like, this doesn't sell. Like, why did they put it here? I don't know. We were told to put it here. How do you think that people, when they've been in a role for so long, can get a fresh perspective? I think you have to constantly be pushing yourself out of your comfort zone by asking your users or your uh, customers what they're experiencing and keeping an open mind when you talk to them. And Hmm. you've got to talk to everyone on your team constantly. You have got to do one-on-ones. You have to talk to new people. You've got to talk to old people, people who've been veterans. And that's the only way I think that you can maintain a perspective is to keep an open mind and constantly be asking questions. I thought you were going to say something else. Oh, let's hear. I thought you would say something like maybe people should take a hiatus or maybe they should travel. They should go and check out a different company that's doing something similar so you can see how it's done over there. Hmm. I don't. I, I, I know that that's a theory, but I have a hard time with that because I'm not sure that everything is so transferable. So I wonder, like, you go and you travel and you bring back ideas from your travels to your yeah. company. Like, what percent of those actually pay off versus just listening to the people who are dealing with the struggles day to day? I mean, I think you need a few of those. You need to have the big picture. Yeah, I but don't think it's either or. Huh? Can't you get those in a shower? Like, the shower thoughts, the gym thoughts, like the times where you're disconnected from work. But are you ever really disconnected from work when you're, like, at work? For example, I mean, New York City, they say, is the greatest city in the world. But then you go to, like, Paris or you go to Rome or you go other places and you're like, wait, these are fabulous cities. And, oh, look, the streets are clean. There aren't huge rats running. It's like, why don't we implement whatever it is that they're doing in these cities that are working? That's right. Why don't we implement it here in, like, New York City? Yeah. My view on that is you hire somebody who has that experience and you bring them Uh. in with their set of eyes so that they can tell you how they would implement it in your place. I see. That's my theory. But the only way we can prove this, Nina, is to go on vacation. We got to go take a sabbatical and let's go around the world. And <laughs> hey, if LinkedIn won't pay for it, absolutely. I'll come back. I promise you I will come back with fresh perspective. All right. We're sending Nina around the world. This is the last <laughs> podcast you'll hear from Nina for six months. We're going to go take a quick break. When we come back from the break, more from my conversation with Stephanie Linartz. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. And we're back. You know, the pandemic 
left such a mark on leaders, and it kind of always comes up in the interviews. But typically when leaders are talking about it, they kind of keep it in a box. It's like, oh, and here is what happened in the pandemic. And that was tough. And then it's like, but that's behind us. And now we're in this new world and here's what it's like. For Stephanie, it felt more raw. She talked about this experience at Marriott. You know, Marriott was just shut down, no travel at all, no people visiting their hotels. And she just talks about the pain of going through that. Um, And Stephanie says that that really helped her learn a lot about her leadership team. And she kind of thinks everyone should go through a crisis like that. You learn a lot from people and you learn a lot about yourself when you go through it. So let's hear her talk about it. I like to listen to as many people as I possibly can. I like data and facts, but at the end of the day, most decisions are a combination of data and facts and intuition and gut, because you're never gonna have all the data and analysis. You know, I learned that in the depths of COVID when um, we were going through really rough times at Marriott. I mean, that was the worst time I've ever experienced in my career, the worst Marriott had experienced in its 94 year history at the time. I think leaders are really tested during times of crisis. And what I learned during COVID is we had to make decisions quickly based on the best information we had at the time. And then if we got new information, we had to adjust and pivot. So living through COVID at Marriott was such a big thing for my development and growth. And I take that experience of managing through the worst crisis. um, And that was a crisis on every level, right? Health crisis, humanitarian crisis. And taking those learnings of being agile making decisions quickly based on the information that you have. I take that with me in my CEO role. It always surprises me when I talk to leaders who are, I assumed, I've always assumed that these leaders are all data-driven. But when you talk to executives, almost always they'll talk about their intuition as what's driving them. And it seems to me like you get to a level, you need to understand the data to reach a certain level in business that's required, but then you have to have the intuition to get to the next level. The data can only look backward. It can only tell you what's happened in the past. So if you were going to lead your company forward, you have to have strong intuition. And I think that's what Stephanie is talking about. There was no data that she could have relied on to get Marriott through the pandemic. For me, it was very much the opposite. I think largely that was because I grew up in an industry where there was no data. Mm. You know, in the journalism world, in magazines, you really didn't have any data. You could never tell who was reading your stories. You didn't know what worked or not. You would sell a magazine. You could see whether it sold or not, but it was like, was it the cover image? Was it the text on the cover? Was it the topic? So we would all just guess, and the data didn't make any difference. So it wasn't really until I got to LinkedIn and I actually started having data that I had to learn how to use the data to make decisions. And that's been, by the way, it's great. It is like so nice to sit in a room with people and you all have the exact same data. It's like, what's that argument? You know, you're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. That's the way I feel with like looking at the data. We look at it and we're like, oh yeah, here's what the data says. Now let's try to interpret it. Did you find that your intuition matched the data? No. I mean, sometimes, but sometimes it really doesn't. And that's a, a total kick in the pants. That must be hard. Oh yeah, it's really hard. So then how do you go back to trusting your intuition? I had to, it's a great question. I don't know how other people have done it. I would say that I went through a two-year crisis of confidence at LinkedIn where I realized that my intuition wasn't as good as I thought it was. And I had to sort of rebuild my trust in myself after that. And what's nice is that you start using the data and then you start building new intuition based on the data. And once you've seen the same data enough, you can start 
pattern matching in your head and you're like, oh, this is what moves things. And now I realize this, or I'm going to test this out and see whether I'm right or not. What I've learned is how to have intuition, use that intuition to be able to make a decision, mm -hmm. and then use the data to decide whether your decision was the right one or not. Hmm. Yeah, I'm just, I wish I had a better, I think I have a good gut feeling, but I don't, I don't trust my intuition. Huh. Do you <laughs> trust data? I do. I trust data and I trust facts. Yeah. Um, you know, I play Sudoku on my phone and every now and then when I don't know what the number is, I'll, I'll be like, I feel <laughs> like it's six. How does that work? <laughs> well, here's the weird, you're not going to believe me. But when I trust my intuition on like the random number in Sudoku, it's actually like 80% correct. Yeah, but Nina, that's pattern matching. That's exactly, you play enough and you're seeing these patterns. So that is a... But it's, so it's sublim It's like subconscious. Yeah, exactly. You've seen this pattern so many times. You're pretty sure what it is. You don't need to go and do the math again. You don't need to figure it out. You, you like look at the numbers. You could probably look at those squares and be like, it's six. See, like so for a second, I thought maybe I was psychic. Oh, you could be psychic also. Sorry, that's that's great <laughs> if you're psychic also. That's, that's what perfect. I was telling myself. I was like, look at you, Nina. <laughs> All right, forget, the, forget going on a sabbatical. Instead, we're going to go oh, buy lottery tickets right after this. <laughs> you know, I wanted to touch on what Stephanie is looking to do at Under Armour. And what people who love the brand, who follow the brand, or even maybe own some equity stake in it, can look forward to uh, at her tenure there. She's been there a little over five months, but she has a very clear plan for it. Let's listen to what she had to say. The way I think about running Under Armour and the way I thought about um, my role as the president of Marriott International, this is gonna sound simple, sounds easy, does hard, is I really think it's about focus execution and accountability. Mm -hmm. And so when I came into this role at Under Armour, I thought, well, we need to focus more. We can't do everything. We don't have endless um, money. We don't have endless people. We need to focus on a smaller set of priorities, and then we need to execute against them. And so that's how I really, when I came into the company, there was 35 major efforts and projects, and I narrowed that down to three major buckets of work and nine projects. So I said, let's narrow, better to do a few things really well or a smaller number of things really well than try to boil the ocean. So it's about that focus um, is key. Picking the right things matters too. So we're focusing on building brand heat with a big focus on the United States, better design and more and better product and then ultimately driving our results in North America, which is our biggest market. But we had to focus down on those three buckets of work and the projects and the priorities that laddered them underneath of them. And then on the execution front, it was really making sure that Under Armour was doing a better job of cross-functionally working across finance and HR and operations and product. And then at the end of the day, holding myself accountable and the team account accountable for delivering the business results. So. Focus, execution, and accountability, I think, are the key to running any any company. You know, she said focus, execution, and accountability, which are three great words. But I'm, I'm surprised that she didn't say others, like transparency or communication. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure how. I think the focus, execution, and accountability are good Wall Street words. Right. It probably plays really well in the investor community. Right. But I think if you're working at Under Armour, I can only speak for myself. That's not the kind of thing that's going to keep me motivated. Like, yeah, we're super accountable. Right. Um, you know, you want to know how does that play into your day-to-day? -day? How does that make you feel great about what you're doing? How does that make you, how is it going to make 
runners better and Steph Curry better at basketball? And, you know, how are you going to be the top thing that athletes wear or kids wear, whatever it is? Like, that's the kind of stuff that motivates us every day to come to work and do better, I think, is being able to see someone use your product and be better at what they do because they're using your product. Yeah, yeah. So, Dan, when assembling a new team or when new leadership comes to a team, how do you know who to keep, who to bring with you, and how do you decide, which I think is probably the hardest thing, of like who you need to let go? There's a great book by Jim Citrin on, it's called You're in Charge, Now What? Hmm. And it's a great guide for CEOs. And obviously, I've never been a CEO. I'm not exactly sure how you go through something like this. But probably the first thing that you need to do when you get into the corner office is start talking to your people and deciding who's with you on this voyage. Hmm. Who is who is someone you trust? Who do you want to have around you? Who is gone? Um, it really goes back to that first question is you want to ask people the dumb questions. and You want to see what they know. and You want to see if they are willing to think differently. You know, what you're probably looking most for is um, someone who really understands the market well, understands their area really well, but has that growth mindset that they're not going to dig their heels in and challenge everything you do or say like, this isn't the way that we do things. So if you have, a, let's say a cabinet, right? You have like your close cabinet members. Let's say you've got 10. How many of them do you want to be like diehard on your side? And how many of them do you want to be naysayers? Oh man, that's a great question. There's a great book about this called Team of Rivals. You know, Abraham Lincoln really had ways of thinking about how many people in your cabinet you want to have be naysayers. Clearly the answer is more than one and mm -hmm. definitely more than zero. I can't imagine you want everyone to be pushing back at you at all times. That is just, I mean, what is just soul draining to have people questioning what you're doing every single day. Yeah. So I think maybe it's not a question of having a person who's a naysayer. I've all, I've, I've seen that happen where there's one person who is always questioning everything. Yeah. That's not great. No. You want everyone being able to ask these tough yeah. questions. So maybe so, it's a culture. Yes. It's not a one person whose duty is to say like, well, I don't think, but maybe it's a culture where everyone has the freedom and the safe space to say, maybe we shouldn't do it this way. Absolutely. One of my favorite things is Amy Edmondson's work on the value of teams and psychological safety. And mm. to get to your point, it is exactly that, that everyone on a team needs to feel the ability to be able to ask questions and say no and to push back on things. Yeah. How do you build psychological safety on your team? Because I can't tell you how many times at a job we've talked about psychological safety and then the leader says something in a meeting and everyone gets quiet. And I know that everyone has questions yeah. or someone wants to say something and it's just dead silence. My understanding and my experience is that it is entirely on the leaders. It is entirely up to the leader to make that happen. And one of the ways you do it is by asking people in the room questions. Do you agree with this? Am I missing anything? What yeah. do you think? Who did that? We talked about this. Mary Barra. Mary Barra. She would go to, she would point people out. She would sort of single them out in the room. Like, exactly. what do you think? When Mary Barra became CEO of GM, she was on This Is Working. And she talked about one of the things that she wanted to do was get people to commit and to say what they were thinking in meetings. She said GM had a culture of people nodding and who seeming to agree, and then they would leave the room and not do anything. Super toxic. Very toxic. I mean, just like, then you don't know whether a meeting was successful or not. What right. a waste. And so she insisted on getting people to talk. And it was very much, but the only way you can get them to talk is if they feel safe talking. Right. So that's, I think, what is required to make it happen. Hmm. 
one of the things I've loved doing with the show is getting repeat visitors on here because you get to hear how their leadership has changed over yeah. time. And the stuff they wrestled with in their first five months is very different than the stuff they're wrestling with years down the line. Yeah. So let's plan on getting Stephanie down here. I will give you a little behind the scenes. Also, by the way, she and her team were really not happy with me. <gasps> they came Why? in and I was wearing Nikes. I always wear the same pair of black Nike blazers yeah. and she comes in and she just looks down on my oh, shoes man. and I was like, oh my God, I have so screwed up. I never think about what I'm wearing. You know what? I blame your producer. He should have caught that. That's not very psychological. Steven scene. Valdivia that Duarte. <laughs> <laughs> what resonates with you about my conversation with Stephanie Linartz from Under Armour? Let us know on LinkedIn using the hashtag thisisworking. Or send us your voice. You can make a voice memo on your phone and email it to us at thisisworkingatlinkedin.com. Either way, you might hear your contributions on an upcoming episode. You can also interact with us on Spotify. Oh, that's cool. Is that new? New to us. Sue Dennis, a listener from Spotify, left us a comment. Sue says, when you are short on time, it's concise with the main points. Sue, thank you for spending your podcast time with us and for your comment. And to watch the video conversation featuring Dan and Stephanie, check out the show notes. We'll link to it there. This is Working is a LinkedIn editorial production. Our production team includes Sarah Storm, Stephen Valdivia, Asafki Drawn, Scott Reinhardt, and Lolia Briggs. Joe DeGiorgi mixes our show. Enrique Montalvo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Our head of original programming is Courtney Coop. I'm Nina Melendez, senior producer. And I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's editor-in-chief. Be well and stay curious.